Hey everyone, welcome to episode 165 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode comes to you from the Out of Chicago Live event that I took part in back in April. I moderated a panel discussion about night photography and astrophotography with some great panelists including Royce Baer, Ian Norman, Diane Southern, Mike Taylor, and Chris Nicholson. It was a really fun panel discussion in my opinion. We talked about some really cool topics including how to make night photography unique, creative, and relevant, some of our favorite tricks and techniques for night photography, how to do astrophotography from home, artificial light bands in national parks, ethical considerations for night photography, uh, a lengthy conversation about the Starlink satellites and their impact on the night sky, and much, much more. Well, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about one of the awesome things that one of our patrons on Patreon is up to. Michael Rung, who supports the podcast on Patreon, is a landscape photographer based out of Fort Worth, Texas. While stuck at home the past two plus months, he started recording Lightroom tutorials for his YouTube channel and even had the opportunity to host an hour-long webinar during which he shared some of his favorite and often lesser known tips and tricks for Lightroom Classic. Check out the link to his channel in the show notes to view the recording. In addition to the videos that he'll continue to put out on YouTube, Michael also offers private, customized, one-on-one virtual workshops for Lightroom. His goal in teaching is not to help you copy his style, but to help you understand the tools in Lightroom so you can bring your own personal style and vision for your images to life. You can find links to all those things in the show notes. And my cats say hello. All right, let's get to the show. We are live with the epic astrophotography panel discussion uh, with Matt Payne, Royce Bear, Chris Nicholson, Ian Norman, Diana Southern, and Mike Taylor. I don't know, Matt, if you were going to do that, but I figured I'd hand it off to you, Matt. Oh, thanks for doing my job, bro. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm the moderator for this panel and uh, just really excited to be amongst legends here in the panel discussion. And uh, m- me, I'm Matt Payne. I live in Durango, Colorado. I've been doing astrophotography since 2011, I guess. And uh, uh, let's go around and introduce our panelists. Let's, let's just start with you, Royce. Uh, Royce Spear from Salt Lake City, Utah. I've been doing nightscapes since 1981. Uh, that's a way back. But not only a 10 years in the way that we're doing them now as points of light right so i was doing star trails back in 81 awesome and what about for you chris um chris nicholson um the author of photographing national parks and i'm a partner and the director of content with national parks at night uh we run night photography workshops in the national parks and pretty much any cool place we can find uh and uh produce other night photography education materials as well. We have a creative live course, and et cetera. So uh, it's great to be here. Awesome. And uh, Ian and Diana. Hey, guys. Uh, we're Ian and Diana. We run LonelySpec.com. 
which is a website just dedicated to making astrophotography, uh, mostly landscape astrophotography, as accessible as possible to anybody. Um, so we really like to cater towards the beginner and um, really dive into the simplest techniques uh, for shooting the Milky Way and capturing the night sky with the equipment that you already likely have. And Ian's been shooting astrophotography for almost his whole life. Um, and then when we met back in 2012, I jumped in the game and have been doing it since then. So we kind of like to keep the focus on beginners because we know what it's like uh, to have introduced it to me several years back. Yeah. Awesome. And Mike Taylor. Hi, I'm Mike Taylor from uh, Maine. And uh, I've been doing night photography on and off for probably 10 years now. I actually brought, um, if you can see this, this is the first camera that I ever shot the Milky Way with. Um, this is a 6.1 megapixel um, Kodak Z760. It would do F4, it would do 15 seconds, and it would do ISO 3200. Um, and of course it was just JPEGs, right? There was no RAW back then. This was probably 2005-ish when I picked this thing up. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I had that to show everybody that um, you can do this with almost anything. <laughs> yeah, nowadays you can, <clears throat> there's cameras you can, uh, cell phones that you yep. can do with, which is yep. kind of blowing my mind. I'm sure yep. Royce, you're like, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago, we wouldn't have ever thought of taking pictures of the Milky Way with our phones. Right. There, yeah. there was a, um, a Vimeo video that uh, Russell Brown just got through doing on uh, shooting with your, your cell phone, you know, nightscapes. It's just fantastic. You ought to take a look at it. Pixel well, 4 by what? Google? Google Pixel yeah. 4? Yeah, Pixel 4. Yeah, uh, Diana and I recently released a uh, sort of like a short review of the Google Pixel 4 and kind of tested out some of its night photography uh, capability. And it's, it's awesome. I mean, it, it, it really does a super good job. Um, it's very beginner friendly. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, you basically just point and press a button and wait, and uh, it takes four minutes to, to expose it. Um, or, or, and it does some, you know, special stacking, essentially what Starry Landscape Stacker does. And it does it all in a phone. Um, and the result is, is awesome. Uh, I mean, it, it just makes, astrophotography or, you know, nightscape photography that much more accessible to, to, to people. And I, that technology is only going to trickle down. It's an expensive phone. It's like a thousand dollars. But the fact that it is in a device that small, it, it's just going to, you know, it's going to keep going and pretty soon it'll be in the capability of, of everybody's uh, smartphone. Yeah. And the fact that it does stacking in camera is just amazing. Well, I, th I figured it might be good for us to actually come to a consensus about what exactly is astrophotography. And I, I always like to explain it as astro landscape photography because, you know, I don't want to just take pictures of the night sky. I want to take pictures of the night sky in combination with an interesting composition of the landscape. But I'm curious, what are your guys' definitions of, of astrophotography? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I agree. I think of uh, astro <clears throat> astrophotography as shooting things, uh, you know, astronomy subjects. Uh, so uh, whether that's just pointing your camera at the sky for a Milky Way or doing deep sky stuff, you know, uh, using a telescope to get great photos of Jupiter or uh, another galaxy, 
Um, uh, but when, you know, what we all do, you know, uh, I would term astral landscape or, you know, I love uh, the term that Royce uses, the nightscapes, uh, where you're incorporating our earth into the, the photography and shooting the night sky along with that. Right on. Good. You know, there's a, a new format that's uh, been being done by a handful of photographers called Deepscapes where they're using a medium telephoto lens and they're doing uh, photo pills and planet alignment. And they're doing like maybe a 135 millimeter, 150 millimeter and getting a deep space object just as it rises up or just as it's about to set with a landscape feature. So yeah, that's uh, really wild. Paul Schmidt and Ralph Rohner, I think, are the two people that yeah. come to mind that are doing that kind of work right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Some really uh, cool I've seen, stuff. definitely seen uh, quite a few of those things start to pop up on my Instagram feed from some people I follow, and it, I think it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, it's like this is one of the most recent tools that we've been using. It's a 100-millimeter lens, um, and it, it definitely changes the way that you look at shooting, you know, like a, a – typical landscape astrophoto when you're, you're looking through a lens that narrow and that's not even that long, you know, to 50 uh, or hundred, hundred millimeters. Um, but, you know, I, I think it goes to show that like maybe, you know, astrophotography is sort of like a, an overarching genre. And then we have all these subsets of what it can be landscape astro. And then now, you know, like you were saying, uh, deepscapes, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, what does the word astrophotography mean? It just means, literally astro which is star and then photography so if there's some stars in there i think it probably qualifies as sort of some sort of subset <laughs> of astrophotography yeah i think i could go along with that was that a 1.4 100 million yeah yeah this is that's the sigma wow. the sigma uh art um f1.4 um so it's 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 huge you know Sweet. really really big front element Boy, that element. is a honey um, piece of glass yeah, How long have they had that it, out? It's heavy. Um, it's been about it's been out about a year, I think. Um, it says it says 2018 on it, so um, I guess two years ago actually. Uh, so, but well, yeah, thanks, that's, thanks, uh, Ian. We all just lost a bunch of money out of our bank accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate oh. that. <laughs> but, you well, know, that'd be a good portrait lens too. Yeah, it's funny because uh, it, it, I, I feel like it feels strange using that lens for astrophotography because if you look in the marketing material, like go on Sigma's website and, and look it up, they call it the, the bokeh uh, master. That's like, like this, the, the name that they gave it on the Sigma website. And, uh, and when, they, when they were talking about it, they, and then they finally released it and everybody saw how huge it was. People started calling it the bokeh monster. But <laughs> either way, everything about this lens is about how you're going to use it for a portrait, you know, in like studio setting or, you know, weddings or whatever. It's, it's a portrait lens. Um, but uh, it has another use that I think is people can tap into. Well, I'm and, sure uh, the bokeh in the backgrounds, the highlight bokeh is going to just be fantastic. It is pretty ridiculous, and and that makes some of its own challenges. Like focusing is is you know it's it's a hair focus on it. It's very very, uh, 
you have to be very careful with it. Otherwise you're going to be completely out of focus on your stars. Well, one of the uh, interesting slash silly questions I wanted to raise just because of the title of this panel, what is epic? (laughs) Epic (laughs) astropho. Very cool. (laughs) That's very cool. Roy says, I don't know. I think Mike Taylor's background is pretty epic. I was, I was going to say, um, uh, your background, Matt, and my background, um, th- those would be epic. Yeah, I just wanted you to move your head so we could see that lighthouse. No, I, I just think it's, it's a funny term. I, and, and yes, epic is way overused, just like awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think and, epic and, is, uh, it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. How's yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I, I almost think that uh, the, the experience of, shooting astrophotography is sometimes like the more epic thing. Um, It's like we go out at night and, you know, we take these photographs and, um, and I I think the thing that's most epic about it is that when you're out there in the dark, your eyes, they can't really really see what your camera can see, right? Like you can get pretty close in some super dark places, but the color isn't there. um, And the definition isn't quite there. And, then you take a photograph of it and you're standing there with a Milky Way in front of you, your camera in front of you, and then your picture comes on the LCD and you're like, whoa, that's, you know, that's epic. That experience, the yeah. being able to sort of connect what you see, which looks a little fuzzy and not very colorful with your eyes to what the actual light looks like once it's been gathered over, you know, 20 seconds or something. And that's, yeah. that's the best part about teaching workshops is when people haven't done it before and you get their settings all right and everything and they take their first couple shots and they go, what? <laughs> that's epic. Yeah. You know what I think is epic and, and you kind of hit on it, Ian, is the, the, the contrast range that we're dealing with in nightscape photography, uh, you're typically, you know, if you're trying to get a foreground, the background, the sky, and all that stuff, you could be a one to 20,000 ratio. I mean, a, a print on the wall in 8 bit is only one to 256, 256. Uh, and, you know, most screens are, you know, one to. 100, 1,024, and so on and so forth. You know, as you get the bit rate up. Uh, we have to do a lot in order to compress all these contrast ratios into a picture that where you can see everything. And, and I like what uh, a lot of photographers are doing now in using the moon. Matt, you're, you use the moon in that shot. Mike, you use the moon in, in your shot. Yeah, yep. there's moonlight in that picture. Uh, you know, Brad Goldpaint is one of the guys that has really gone with that. I mean, he, yep. he teaches a lot how to use moonlight. I mean, we all tried to not have the moon in our pictures. We want to be around the new moon area so it, it doesn't affect, but uh, because it lowers the contrast of the Milky Way. But a little bit. Hey, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mostly do it because I'm lazy with post-processing. Like I don't want to, this, this was a panorama and I don't want to do a, you know, a whole panorama at a lower ISO and then do all this crazy blending work in Photoshop. I want the natural light to be shining on the foreground so that 
well, one, it looks more natural and it feels more natural and was based on what my experience was, but also it's a lot less <laughs> difficult to process in Photoshop. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if you can get a, a quarter moon over to the, you know, right of your picture, just as it's setting and, and using it as the foreground light, hey, I'll take it any day. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Well, maybe this is a great segue, Royce. I think you were brain drilling into my brain but um, my next question is how do you make night photography unique or creative or relevant because uh one of the observations that i've had as someone who's been doing night photography for a decade which is a third of the time you've been doing it royce is everyone's doing it and it, it's all starting to kind of look the same and look really similar so how do we make this still interesting and unique I'd like to say one thing, and that is that I'm still in love with the single exposure if I can get away with it. Uh, I think one of the things that's making a lot of our pictures all look, starting to look the same, is all the blending, stacking, tracking, and stuff we, I mean, some of these pictures get pretty dang complicated. Uh, you know, the number of images, the number of exposures, the blending, and and whatnot and stacking what we do, um, you know, and I'm all for that. Any way that we can use uh, high dynamic range to compress the, the image, but I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of getting just doing that single exposure. I, I kind of shoot things the way uh, I used to do back in the old film days. Uh, you know, I was shooting with a 35 millimeter slide film, you know, Kodachrome or Fuji Chrome 50. And uh, if I really liked a shot, then I'd get out my two and a quarter camera. And if I really, really liked it, I'd get out the four by five. And if I really, really liked it, I'd get out the eight by 10, you know? <laughs> and, and it's kind of the way it is for me with um, uh, the Nightscape photography. Uh, I first shoot with a single exposure. If I really like it, maybe I'll do some stacking or blending. And if I really, really like it, I'll track and, and do pano. But I try to keep it as simple as possible. And I think the way that we can um, make it not so much like everybody else's is try to find those unique locations, try to find those relationships between the foreground and the sky and just get something uniquely different. You know, mix it with moonlight or whatever so that we don't have to do this fancy dancy razzle dazzle post-processing like you talk. you know you say you're lazy but uh you know because you're using moonlight but darn i think you're smart well thank you yeah i think um this question of like you know how do we keep things interesting or how do we make things unique is like honestly like you could apply it to every genre of photography right like like take your pick you know I mean, fashion, street photography, uh, travel photography, um, portraits, I mean, you know, landscape in general, like we, we go to these places that have been shot a million times again and again. I mean, there's a reason why we go to some place like, say, like Skogafoss in, in, uh, in Iceland, right? Everybody's seen photographs of Skogafoss. Diana and I have been there and it's always packed with people and there's, uh, you know, any, any time of the day. And 
but we still shoot it, right? We still shoot it. It's that that's why we love photography. Like it doesn't matter if it's been shot before or if somebody's standing right next to us composing the same photograph. Like this photograph is mine, right? It, it gets to be mine. And uh, sometimes it's doesn't necessarily have to be about the result, but more about you know the experience. The, yeah, the experience of being yeah. there. And you know, I, I think that that photography being able to let us experience these things that are still they're still unique on, on a grand scale you know in the sense like not everybody you know gets to be awake at bryce canyon at midnight and see right. the milky way rise like you know uh, gets to trip around in the dark and hear funny noises and wonder what the heck is is sneaking up behind them you know like sometimes that that's the fun part of it and yep. so I, I think it's important, you know, with people approaching astrophotography, especially if they're doing it uh, or maybe they're struggling with trying to create something unique. It's like maybe don't worry about that too much and just worry about, you know, having fun with the experience first. And and at the end of the day, like, you know, those memories are, are yours, whether or not somebody else, you know, did it last week, too, and got the same shot. Yep. Well said. Anything you want to add, Chris or Mike? I think you guys nailed it. The only thing that, that I would say is um, I com- completely agree with what Roy said in that uh, there are a handful of, of, of folks who, who shoot Milky Way stuff who have completely changed um, how they shoot now because they, they will not go out and do a single shot. They go out and they do 10 shots and then stack everything. And the, the idea that if you're not taking 10 shots and stacking them, um, you're not doing it right. Um, I don't agree with that. You know what I mean? Um, I I agree with the whole idea of going out and if you can get it in a single frame, that's fantastic. Um, and you know, I've I've shot a lot of time lapse stuff um, um, lately, and that's that's always a, a good way to um, you know come back home with a lot of data, and then be able to figure out what you want to do with all that data. Um, but the, the, the whole idea of, I mean, Matt, you know, from our, our conversations before that I, I love processing, right? I love post-processing just as much as going out and shooting. But on the other hand, I, I don't feel like we need to, you know, stack 10 different shots to, you know, to come away with one single image, um, that you can do with a single shot. I mean, when it, when it comes to the whole, you know, back and forth about noise. And if you're, if you're not stacking shots, then your shots are, are just ugly. Um, when it comes to printing stuff, if, if your image doesn't have any noise in it at all, then the print is not going to look very good, right? You actually need noise when you print something so that it has texture. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yes. Well, especially in yeah. this night sky. Yeah, I've added, I've added noise to shots right. before, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to have that sort of, uh, yeah, you, you'll actually, it, it'll almost make it look sharper sometimes. Uh, yeah. Right. Cause if hard, it's too smooth, because yeah. if it's too smooth, it doesn't look natural at all. Yeah. yeah. And it, it gives that tactile nature to it. Uh, uh, I totally yep. agree. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know what Ian said about it being your experience, you know, there's so many people that it, when people used to come to my workshops, you know, that they, they were looking for those iconic locations. They wanted these bucket list shots and, and I hear them, but yet uh, 
many of the pictures that they fell in love with from the workshop were simple things that right. weren't iconic locations. They, they became their favorite uh, photograph. And it was favorite to the other participants too, because it was totally different. Right. And, and it was their special viewpoint, their special photo vision and perspective. And, uh, and, and I like how two people can be standing at the same location yep. and get totally different pictures yep. because of who they are. And thank goodness for the variety in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I just absolutely. love, I love looking at all of your pictures. You all have a different style and, and uh, vision. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's move on to another question. So it's a pretty simple one on the surface. Uh, what are some of your favorite tricks and techniques for epic astro photography? How long do we have? <laughs> yeah, other than using the moon. Oh, that was going to be mine. No, <laughs> uh, seriously, I, I love putting the moon in the shot and just letting it blow out and... Uh, I mean, she's kind of creates like this chocolatey light in the scene. Uh, that's something that I've just fallen in love with in the past couple of years. Um, you know, yeah, I just love doing that. Yeah, I saw there was a question from the audience about a sharp moon and a lit foreground. And at the end of the day, I don't actually think having a sharp moon adds any value in a, in a, in a wide, wide angle photograph that's of the night sky. I don't, I mean, I just don't think people, people expect to see it that way but yeah it's so hard to get that to look natural right if you tried to blend in you know like yeah. if i was trying to blend in a moon right there that was all the textures of a sharp properly exposed moon it would just look really weird yeah yeah just let it blow out let it go <laughs> yeah did you notice that last year um the Jupiter was right in the right near or right in the Dark Horse Nebula for for so many months, and uh, boy, it was a no. You know, I liked it many times, but it was annoying to me. And one of the techniques that I used was taking, you know, after I'd processed the image and build the contrast that I wanted in the night sky, then I would go back to the raw image and do a lower contrast. And so I got more detail and a smaller Jupiter until I almost got, you know, it, it turning into a big star instead of a big overglown right. glown moon. And then feathering around that, capturing a, an area or circle around that and feathering it, and then taking that and blending it in with the final product so that you got, so, so Jupiter wasn't just uh, taking away all the, you know, it, it wanted to be the picture. You know, your eye went to it because it was that brightest area in the sky. So trying to tone that down a little bit. Uh, yeah. It was one of the techniques that I learned that I used a lot last year because of where Jupiter was. It was driving me nuts. I think for me, yeah. one of the things I, I always want to impart on people is that there's more to the night sky than just shooting the core of the Milky Way, you know? Yeah. Like, obviously, it's exciting looking. It looks awesome. And both Mike and I have it as our backgrounds. But 
you can get awesome photos of the night sky in January in the Northern Hemisphere with zero Milky Way core. And I just, I think some people get really obsessed with making sure the Milky Way is in their photograph. And I think sometimes it's fun to shoot the night sky in any direction, any time of year. It doesn't have to be, you know, the Milky Way core. So I, I think- I would ask you then, um, I was gonna ask this later, but can a, can a shot be epic without it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It can be even better because it's something different from what everyone else is posting too. Yep, like exactly. you can scroll through so many photos of the Milky Way, the Milky Way, you know, the galactic core, and then your eye will get caught by one that's, you know, the camera's yeah. pointed in the opposite direction. I'd expand on that even more. I mean, you don't even have to have stars. Um, you know, the, uh, there's the adage that bad weather makes for good photography, and that can work at night, too. I've got plenty of photos that I like where there were clouds. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and yeah, that yeah, was don't be afraid of a cloudy night. Yeah, and you both hit on something that I wanted to talk about, is that, you know, how we always started in the beginning to get those cloudless nights and those moonless nights, and now I want to shoot just the opposite. I yep. want clouds. If if yep. it's absolutely clear, uh, I'm a little disappointed now. Yep. Because I, I want to get something different. I tell people I tell people all the time um, on workshops or or you know when they contact me to ask me questions about you know shooting the night sky that kind of stuff. Um, I used to be a cloud hater, right, for the first couple of years that I was shooting because I always wanted to get as much Milky Way as possible. But honestly. The clouds are what adds all the drama to it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't want a total blanket of clouds, right? But but clouds here and there, I mean, that's fantastic. It, it yeah, really absolutely. is. Yeah. In fact, one of my best-selling uh, nightscape images with the Milky Way, uh, I tried to figure out why it was so popular, and then I, I went back and compared it to others. Oh, my goodness. It's because this has clouds in it. Right. <laughs> That's what's so appealing to it. And yeah. Uh, and well, this think, isn't necessarily an on or off situation. I love shooting when there are some clouds, you know, like yeah. doing a long exposure and you get the streaks of clouds coming through the sky. Uh, again, just like, you know, um, in daylight using a 10 stop ND and sometimes they can get these great patterns in the clouds. You could do that same thing at night in a long exposure yep. and getting that juxtaposition, especially if there's a little bit of moonlight lighting up the clouds and you get these lit soft streaks with the sharp stars behind them. That's a really dynamic uh, combination and a composition. Yeah. Or, or even, or even a little bit of light pollution, which none of us really like light pollution, but I tell you what, um, every once in a while, like the, like the shot that's behind me, I mean, everything that's bright in there, that's that's all light pollution, and it and it seemed to work. You know what I mean? As long as it doesn't blow everything out, it actually adds a little bit. Yeah, having I having agree. that glow, you know, having that glow in there is awesome. Yeah, I definitely think uh, like you know, moonlight. If you if you have a rising moon or a setting moon too, like partial moon yeah. in there, it'll look like the sunset, you know, or a sunrise. Um, like it'll take on colors through the atmosphere just like the sun does. And you add some clouds in there, and you've got like an epic sunrise-looking photo, epic. yeah, <laughs> with the Milky Way or or with the stars in there, or whatever you know. And and um, you know, those are you know, it's sort of like it's like the night photographer's magic hour, if you will. 
um, which is a little bit more difficult to get because it's only necessarily going to happen a few times each month at different portions of the month right. or at odd hours of the night. But um, sometimes those are the best, the best times to shoot. Yep. There's I, a work, I had a workshop about three years ago where one of the participants, um, we were at a location that he had been on two other workshops with me and, and said, um, well, I think I'll set this one out tonight because I've already been here with you at this location on two other workshops. And I said, you got to be kidding. I said, the atmospheric conditions are going to be different tonight than yeah. the other two times that you've been on a workshop with me. And it turned out to be his favorite picture ever that he had ever taken. I mean, come on. Yeah. The more times that we go out, the more experiences we have, the more times we keep shooting. I mean, yep. it's always yeah. different. It's always different. Yep. I think was, we could look at everybody's portfolio and see that we've all been back to the same places again and again before. Like we, we all have our favorite spots and we'll, you know, like for Diana and, and me, it's like we've been up and down highway 395 in California and shot all of the places along there, like a million times, Alabama Hills and Trona Pinnacles and uh, you know, Mammoth Lakes and Mono Lake and all that stuff. Like we just keep going back there and it doesn't matter if we stood right in the same exact spot and sh shot the same photo at the same time of night. Uh, we'll, we'll do it again because we know we're going to get something different. Yeah. There's a question from Barbara in the chat about, um, she says, living in Florida where it's very flat, my Milky Way and star images are starting to look alike. What do you <laughs> recommend for switching it up? Would you recommend using a longer lens like Ian showed uh, or maybe using props? And this was actually going to be one of the things I was going to answer for the previous question. And for me, one of the things that I like to think about is making it so that the night sky is not the main subject of the photograph, that the night sky is just a, uh, and obviously the photo behind me is not a good example of that, but uh, just the night sky maybe just being a small part of the composition that it's not, it's just accentuating the composition. So really focusing on the composition of what you have in the landscape and then just using the elements in the night sky to complement that. That's, that's one of the things, ways that I try to keep it fresh. Yeah, when you, shoot, when you shoot a sunrise or a sunset, right, you don't just point the camera straight up at the sky, right? You always shoot something in the foreground. So I try to think of, you know, we were talking about astrophotography versus landscape astrophotography. I always try to keep landscape as the first thing, right? It's always the, um, it, it's always, uh, the foreground that's more important than what you're, what you're shooting in the background, right? Um, so that's what I always try to think of as well, is it's, it's almost always about the foreground, right? Absolutely. Okay. May I make a suggestion here? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, she should try it's changing her perspective. She's probably been shooting from uh, chest up, you know, from five feet, get down lower at a lower perspective, or get, uh, get a pole. Uh, have you ever heard of pole photography? She can get a 30-foot pole for $750 with a remote, uh, you know, with a remote camera thing. A whole the original perspective. selfie stick. Yeah. A whole pre, new pre or, or a stepladder. Yeah. Uh, and then let's go to a drone here. Get it. 
get a part 107 and uh, so that you can fly your drone at twilight and start shooting at these these drones now some of them the my maverick pro 2 uh, i've got up to eight seconds exposure yeah, actually, i mean it is a stable platform i actually have a podcast episode coming up with someone who we just talked about doing drone photography for astro which i was like what <laughs> but yeah. yeah it's definitely possible bryce i thought you were going to start talking about low-level lighting <laughs> well <laughs> let me t- I'll, I'll just say a little bit about that first of all there's a free free website uh Wayne Pinkston and I have put together a couple of years, several years ago, a place called lowlevellighting.org. And we're starting to update it more, but it's a, it's a public service. All the information on there is free, the tutorials, the equipment and whatnot. Some people, you know, light, uh, artificial light is somewhat passe to some people. Some people don't like it at all. Our style of, uh, of artificial lighting is a constant light source, very low level. Uh, we've had people come in and at workshops that have been there and say, uh, can we set up some lights? Can we do some light painting? And we'll say, well, actually we've got some lights set up right now. They've been, we set them up uh, about an hour ago. Well, I don't see anything. We're, right. <laughs> well, just let your eyes adjust a few, few minutes and then uh, take a picture. And all of a sudden, wow, I can't believe that. You can actually see it. But uh, I'm still getting pushback on um, even on low-level lighting. And I'm trying to incorporate it with moonlight, with blended exposures, just to make it uh, even more natural. Because it's still artificial light. And any way that you can make it look natural uh, by blending it, mixing it with other things, uh, I'm going to do it. Just to piggyback off of that for a second, can I just mention that it's a total bummer that um, Arches and Canyonlands now won't even let us use triple L, low-level lighting? I mean, you, you can barely see it with your eyes, and, and yet, you know, you know people are going to be running around with, with bright flashlights and stuff like that, and yet now we can't even use low-level lighting in those parks. That's a bummer. It is a bummer, but I hear what uh, some of the um, purists are saying. There's a guy by the name of uh, Roger Clark, and yeah. uh, and Roger says, hey, I understand about low-level lighting, but shut it off after a while so that we can do our thing. Um, Sure. Some suggestions might be maybe we should do odd, we should petition the park to do odd even days or something like that. I think that's a, definitely a reasonable thing. I mean, at the end of the day, like um, photography feels like a lone wolf kind of uh, hobby, right? But ultimately, we're going to go to these places and there's going to be other people. And so it, it has to become a team effort and uh, it requires cooperation. So you know, if they're like, I don't know, I, I can probably speak for Diana and I, we rarely use light painting of, of any kind. Um, and when we do encounter other photographers in the field um, that are light painting, the first thing that we try to do is, is start communicating with them about, you know, like, hey, you know, what, what are you shooting? Uh, uh, you know, 
I see that you have a light on right now. Um, I was going to try to do like a dark exposure in about a minute here. Do you mind if you turn it off, uh, you know, just for a few minutes while we do a couple exposures, like doing that, like little, you know, gesture of communication between the people around you, I think is really important in situations like that. Sure. I, I really think it is too. Uh, I was in an area here last year in Bears Ears and I wanted to do some, um, light paint, I'm not light painting, but low level lighting. And the photographer there did not want any at all. And I said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll just do it your way tonight. And I think we need to cooperate. And well, if you think about communication. it, if you think about it, um, you, you both, both parties have a point, right? Like it's, it's public land. We all own it. We all share it. We all share the responsibility of making sure that it's you know, there for the future. And I think coming up with a solution like you're proposing of, you know, they're, you know, maybe the first Monday of the month is all low level lighting day in the park and have at it or whatever. I think, I think that's completely reasonable. And I think it's also reasonable to offer the opposite people a, a solution of say, Hey, there's no light painting on Tuesdays or whatever it is, you know? So I, I think, I think you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to look at it. There was a question from Mike in the chat. He's, and this is one of my favorites. It's just, is there a go-to starting setting for night photography? 20 seconds or less, F4, what ISO? And I guess I'll start out my, you know, when I first started, I was always doing 30 seconds, F28, uh, ISO 3200 or 6400. But it really depends on your equipment, right? I mean, not all equipment's made equal. And that's that's assuming you have a wide angle lens like at 14 millimeters. Um, it was interesting when I switched from Nikon to Sony, I didn't have a 14 millimeter lens anymore. I had a 21 millimeter lens and I couldn't go 30 seconds anymore. I had to do like 20. So I was trying to use like a modified 600 rule, you know, in my head of, you know, 600 divided by the focal length equals in the maximum amount of time you can spend exposing before you get star trails. So for me, it's, it depends on your equipment. There's a lot of answers to that question. <laughs> we always Thanks. just tell people 20 seconds, F2.8, ISO 3200. That, that's like a great place to start with like most wide angle shots. So yeah, if you are like, if you're like just starting out and you don't want to think about it, you're in a dark place, that setting will get you there. Um, but yeah, it, you know, you, you can, depending on your gear, you can really dial it dial it in you know for whatever look you want to go for like if you want super pinpoint stars or if you're really trying to minimize noise every camera has different behavior with iso um you know some like it really high like like a lot of canon cameras do really great at like iso 6400 or even 12800 um, but at the end of the day yeah you could just use those settings and at least get a shot well and not to get super technical ian but you have a great um uh article on your website, uh, Lonely Spec, that talks about ISO invariance and how it varies from camera to camera. And yeah. like, you know, not all, even the same brand of camera, like my, my Sony a7R2 is ISO invariant, I think at ISO 640 and 100. So, and you know, my a7R4, it's completely different. So do you want to talk a little bit about ISO uh, invariance? Yeah, I could talk about that. Um, basically, um, the take-home point is that the way that cameras are working, um, hopefully without getting too nerdy here, is that 
they, <laughs> they apply different levels of amplification to the, the image. And the higher the amplification for higher ISOs makes the image brighter. And uh, sometimes what that does is it can elevate the, the signal of the picture. It, it actually takes the, the actual you know, colors of the picture, if you will, and it raises it above the, what they would call the noise floor. And um, so because of that, it, there can actually be a benefit for a lot of cameras to shoot at a higher ISO when we're shooting in these dark conditions, because we actually want to amplify the signal above the noise so that the, 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 the light overtakes the noise that would already exist in the image. Um, and most cameras tend to follow that behavior. It's actually beneficial to use a slightly higher ISO, like ISO 1600 or even ISO 3200, um, in order to have the very cleanest shadow details. Um, and um, there are a few exceptions, however. Um, cameras like the Nikon D750 is almost completely ISO invariant. And that means it doesn't really matter what ISO you choose. Um, there's no distinct benefit for using an extremely high ISO um, or, or even a detriment for using a fairly low ISO, except for the fact that maybe once you see the camera on the back of your LCD, it might look completely dark if you shot at ISO 100 in a, in a very dark place. Um, the take home point for it is that uh, every camera is gonna be different. Um, it's sometimes very useful to look up that, that term, ISO invariance and plug in your camera. So like if you have, for example, like a Sony A7, um, search the term ISO invariance and Sony A7. There's several different websites that um, track that data essentially like where is it invariant in its ISO range and um, you know what ISO would be best for low light um, and uh, DP review and photons to photos and uh, a couple other sites do similar tests. And then of course you know if you're stacking at all it completely throws most of that out the window anyway. Sure yeah absolutely. <laughs> What I like to tell um, uh, newbies on workshops, if they've never done any uh, night photography before or specifically Milky Way shooting, um, 2.8, 20 seconds, ISO 3200. If you, if you can see stars with your eyes and you've got the focus in the camera and, and all that is good to go, you take a shot. Those settings are no fail settings because if you take a shot and there's nothing that comes up on the back of the screen, take your lens cap off <laughs> there's a reason why those are no fail settings and we always start there and then, you know, adjust settings from that point because that's, that's the setting that will absolutely work no matter what. And it assumes that you're in a dark sky environment with minimal moonlight and minimal noise, light pollution. So that's why I said it depends because absolutely. you can do night photography in the suburbs and you're not going to want to shoot it F28 20 seconds at ISO 6400 because <laughs> it'll be completely blown out. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And the keystone to all this is to be in focused, you know, infinity focus. Uh, I can't tell you how many shots I've ruined thinking that I was in focus and uh, I wasn't. I mean, you, you know, either, well, there's all different kind of discussions on how to focus on infinity and the infinity mark on your lens doesn't mean crap well, right. on, on many lenses. 
you've got to do some live focus and really enlarge that up to at least 10 times and, and pinpoint that focus. And once you get it there, you might want to tape it down. And don't think that that, well, I taped it down last week. I got it in focus and taped it down last week. Right. So I'm sure that it's, <laughs> it's in focus. That tape can move. Uh, the, gla the, uh, um, the temperature. The temperature will, matters. The temperature okay. matters. It will change your focus because of the optics, the thickness of your, especially on super wide lenses that have a super big front element. I've and seen if you're, if you're shooting Sony, it's like there is no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you just got to use live view and get it pinpoint. Yeah. 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 Can I ask a follow-up for Matt from that kind of, kind of piggyback off the technical question? Sure. Maybe um, just to think about some of the folks here who maybe have never shot Astro before or right. um, or nightscapes um, or they're coming from another photo genre. Um, and my question would be is like, I like to always ask people who have been in it for a long time, if you had to start over, um, how would you, what, what advice would you give yourself? Um, or, um, you know, how do you become proficient in nightscapes and astrophotography? And of course, feel free to plug yourselves because I mean, I know, you know, most of you guys also could be like, well, here's the ebook I wrote, um, but you should. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'll pass that back to you guys. So yeah, like what would you tell your, yourself to, as you're getting into astrophotography? Repetition. <laughs> Repetition, yeah. Repetition. Keep, keep doing it until it becomes muscle memory. I mean, it's, it's just like anything else, right? Um, you, don't, you don't start um, painting and you're a brilliant painter, right? You don't start drawing and you're a, a brilliant um, um, sketch artist. You don't start writing if you're a writer, right, and become brilliant automatically. It's, it's, it's doing it over and over and over and over until it becomes second nature. Yeah, that is so good, Mike. And also learn uh, the controls on your camera, where they are in the dark by feel. Um, I, I can't tell you how annoying it is uh, to be in a group and people have to turn on their, their lights, uh, which is even worse is to turn on the red lights. They're actually worse than, the, than their regular white headlights. I mean, the, the red lights are to keep our night vision, but boy, if they, uh, they carry way out in front of you. They definitely don't look as nice in a photograph if they end up in there and there's this big red splotch on one side of your shot. It's yeah. terrible. Uh, by the way, I've been using these little tea lights. You buy the, the little uh, tea lights and you can take that little diffuser flame out and that is a perfect amount of light for flicking on and checking your camera settings and changing your lens. I hold the thing in my mouth and, and can change my lens. That's a good idea. <laughs> it's, it's a really low level light. So those little T lights. This Chris is also a good tool. Uh, yeah. Just your like phone? have your yeah. phone screen really dim. Like, <laughs> you have one right there, Mike. Yeah, I have one right here. Yeah. But yeah, like, you know, using your phone to sort of like see where things are um, is what we tell a lot of our workshop participants um, because it can be significantly dimmer than, than, you know, like a headlamp or whatever that right. you know, not, would end not up the, yeah. not the Not the flashlight on the phone, but just the, the front of the phone, right? Yeah. yeah, just the screen. Yeah, just the screen. Yeah. 
And, and the important thing is to aim that down and back towards you, not yep. out in front of your camera. But, uh, you know, know where the dimming settings are on that phone so it doesn't come on full blast. Right, yeah, yeah. What about for you, Chris? I mean, I want to answer this question, but I want to hear what, you, what you're thinking about it too. Two things come to mind, uh, and that's because most people coming to night photography are coming from day photography, right? There's not a lot of people who pick up photography and start shooting at night. And when you're learning daytime photography, two things that you just get stuck in your head is, you know, to use fast shutter speeds and to use low ISOs. And those are both counter to shooting at night. Um, and it could be hard to break that mental habit. Uh, so, you know, I, I wish when somebody told me when I was first starting a night photography is don't be afraid of a long shutter speed and don't be afraid to crank that ISO as high as it needs to go to get the shot that you want. Yeah, mm -hmm. and shoot uh, as close to wide open or wide open yeah. as you can. Uh, shooting wide open at f2.8 is not bad. If you've got a, a good piece of glass and that has low coma, uh, you know, these stars as, star, as points of light uh, become looking like uh, angel's wings, especially out in the corners with, a, a, with an average lens. Lenses that, uh, like the Sigma Art series, it, they're very beautiful. You can shoot those wide open in most cases, and they have hardly any coma aberration. Yeah, I call that usable aperture, which I'm pretty sure I stole from Ian Norman. <laughs> he has a great, great article on usable aperture and coma on his website. Just so you know, um, kind of bouncing off of that idea and like, you know, these like super fancy lenses and, you know, we look at all this gear and, you know, like, it's like, we've got this, you know, this Zeiss lens, this is Diana's uh, 18 mil and Batiste. It's a, it's an, this is an expensive lens. This thing costs like over a thousand dollars. And so like to sort of bounce off of that, um, I would say that the thing to think about when you're just starting out is don't worry about your gear too much. You, you really don't Absolutely. need a, a $1,500 lens Absolutely. to get a successful shot. It doesn't, you know, necessarily matter if it has terrible coma, you know, or aberrations or anything like that. Um, I, I would say, you know, the most important thing is just to go out, find someplace dark, find a beautiful place to go to with the gear that you have right now. Like, you, you know, it's likely, you know, you're in this conference right now. So you've probably got a DSLR mirrorless camera with, you know, at the very least a kit lens, perhaps maybe an 18 to 55, go out and shoot with that. If that's all you yep. have, because yep. uh, you can still, that's what we started with. That's what, I mean, I mean, the first night photos that I ever took, or with the original Canon Digital Rebel uh, 300D, and uh, I was out in my parents' uh, uh, driveway when I was a kid, and I pointed it up at the sky, and I got a photo photograph of the Milky Way, and that's like where it started. And you know, I, I think you need to go through those steps, um, and and you know, try to shoot with what you have because it's amazing what we can do with just minimal gear. I mean, yeah, we we open the panel talking about how we can shoot on cell phones now and and whatever the gear that you have like just go out there and and shoot it think about the place more than the gear yep, <laughs> well, that is absolutely that that is such great advice uh 
don't get hung up with gear. In fact, some right. of my best-selling images are with, you know, the worst gear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I look at them in the corners, you know, the uh, aberrations, and I go, ooh, but they sell well. It, because, you know, the pixel, the people that I sell the images to are not pixel peepers like you guys. <laughs> Don't get me started on pixel peeping. <laughs> right. But, uh, a lot of that and night photography. <laughs> if you get close into any night photo, you're going to find all kinds of stuff wrong with it. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, if you guys don't mind, I, I wanted to take a stab at answering that question because I think I have a little Please bit of a different. I was going to say don't focus on gear also because I think that's important because I personally got really obsessed with gear early on and I think you can get caught into gear acquisition syndrome really fast with knife photography and it's not really it's not really that important at the end of the day i mean you can shoot even if with an f4 lens you can get some great results so i don't think it's that important but what i was gonna if i were to go back in time and give myself advice it would be to not try to replicate or um copy what other photographers have done before me and or compare myself to those people and try to be as good as those people I think that puts you into this mode of tunnel vision where you try to get photographs that maybe aren't necessarily yours or don't come from your own soul as an artist and I think if, if you go out there with a mind of curiosity and, and wanting to learn and 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 taking photos at night but from a creative viewpoint I think you're going to come away much happier with your photographs. And then that's kind of a corollary to my last point, which is uh, don't be afraid to experiment with all kinds of weird and crazy stuff, you know, like use a, use a flashlight, like put one of my favorite, I think it was my very first photograph of the Milky Way was way back in 2011. It was a kit lens and I had my tent set up and I was camped at the base of a 14er the, the morning before I was going to climb it. And I put a headlamp under my pillow. So it just diffused the light just enough to where my tent was glowing just a little bit. And the Milky Way was kind of faint and not the greatest because it wasn't the best equipment, but it's still a really cool photograph. And, and I wouldn't have done that if I was just trying to copy other people and stuff. So I think. And that was before everybody was doing the tent shot, right? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't remember seeing them before. I love that, the but... tent shot. The tent shot's great. Yeah. Don't be so, afraid yeah. to do the tent shot. <laughs> yeah. Don't be afraid to just experiment and be crazy. I'm going to follow Anne's advice and start doing uh, astrophotography with a lens baby. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. I kind of wanted to hear what Diana maybe had to say about this question because um, she got into it because of me. Um, and a lot of the voice of Lonely Spec is, is her because of, you know, I, I think if, if I was writing on Lonely Spec alone without her input and, and uh, you know, a lot of her voice, it would probably be very dry and way too technical and nerdy. Um, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to hear like... Sure. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to say almost exactly the same thing that Matt just said of not being afraid to experiment because if you get too caught up in what you see other people doing and like not necessarily going out to shoot and try and emulate the exact same photo or technique or whatever, but if you're too caught up in exactly the way people are telling you to do things, you're going to be afraid to fail. Like 
So I think it's important to not be afraid to experiment and also not be afraid to fail because those failures are your like best opportunities for learning. And so Ian always likes to help me or, or, you know, when I was first learning this would always like to help me in the field. Like, and he was one step ahead of me when I was starting to learn back, you know, eight years ago, but I would always have to tell him like, no, I need to learn this for myself. Like I need to take this photo this way. I realize that it's wrong but I need to see that it's wrong when I, you know, go in to edit it later and then I can see everything better and I need to see it on like the big screen um, and I'll learn more from it that way. And I, I'll learn to not make that mistake again, or I'll get an idea on my own of how I would do it differently. And then when I go back and approach it next time, I'll be doing that through that perspective of what I've gained in that experience. So yeah, not being afraid to fail, I think is also as important as not being afraid to experiment. Especially these days because pixels are cheap, right? I mean, it's, it's, we're not in the film days anymore where you only have, um, you know, 24 exposures or whatever what was on the film. You know what I mean? Pixels are cheap now. You can, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing workshops where, where people will, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes getting, getting set up to get the exact right composition and blah, blah, blah. And I say, just push the shutter. Just push the shutter so you can see, you know, what, what you have. Pixels are cheap, man. Yeah. That's yes. Barbara in the chat said, what's the worst that can happen? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's right on. Actually, that's um, one of my favorite tips that I learned from Ben Canales way back in 2010 was that's, that's a great way to figure out a composition at, at night is to yep. jack your ISO as high as it can go and, yep. and look to see what your camera sees and, and then adjust yep. your composition from there. I think that's an awesome, I mean, it's old school, but it works really well. Yeah. In case some of you newbies don't understand what he's talking about, instead of shooting at ISO 3200, jack it clear up to, you know, 25,000 and yeah. shoot, you know, one eighth as long. And, yeah, 10 uh, seconds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, even five, five seconds. So you quickly get an image, change the composition, do another one like that. Ah, I got it right. And then bring it back down to 3200 or whatever you're normally shooting. I think that actually ties in back to um, the um, what was mentioned about uh, get to know your camera. You had mentioned that, Royce, I think, like figure out where those yeah. buttons are in the dark. Um, sometimes uh, your camera might have a setting in it that can help you compose at night. Like uh, a lot does. of these, yeah, a lot of these new cameras um, are implementing some things like Sony has bright monitoring. Um, this is Diana's camera, the A7 Mark III. And uh, that setting is hidden. It is, it is very difficult to find in the menu. You actually have to assign it to your own custom button. It's the only way that you can use it. And um, when we had first got this camera, we didn't know about bright monitoring for a long while. Uh, we had already written a review on Lonely Spec about it. And we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, this camera is what it is. And, and we didn't even mention bright monitoring. And then it wasn't until I think one of our readers had mentioned it to us and we're like, what, you know? And so we, we learned something from, from that. And, um, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe you should just read, read the manual on your camera. You'll find something <laughs> yep. that, that is very, very helpful um, that maybe you otherwise didn't know about. I find, I find never... Sony, I find Sony menus to be very aggravating yeah yeah I've always agree. been that way so. <laughs> well 
Uh, maybe this is a good opportunity to ask another question. And I think this is super relevant during COVID. What are some astrophotography activities that you can do at home? Star trails. Star trails. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently have... in Chicago, you can do them right out of your window, right? You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, anyone who wasn't, who didn't join us for it, we did a photo challenge uh, that we started last Sunday um, of shooting star trails either from your backyard or um, out your window if you happen to be in a situation like us where you have a view of the partially light polluted night sky extremely um, light polluted night sky yeah. but yeah it actually like turns out pretty cool it's definitely worth a try um, yeah for reference for those of you uh, you know participants in the chat uh, Diana and I are in downtown Chicago um, we're basically in literal downtown like if you looked at a light pollution map of where we are it would be completely white it would be uh i don't know what, what bordel level is that bordel very nine. very yeah nine, very nine, very high yeah. nine plus yeah and uh you know it, it's like what you wouldn't even consider doing uh milky way photography here um but that doesn't mean that you can't get a cool photo of the night sky um even though when we take, if we take a single exposure out our window here at night, we can only see a handful of stars, but that's actually all you really need uh, to be able to do uh, star trails photography. Um, and so, yeah, um, you know, all of you have access to the previous uh, webinars and the previous sessions. Um, if you are interested in doing some night photography while you are stuck at home, um, check out the uh, star trails from your backyard session. Uh, we did a little spiel on on how to do it from your window. And we actually did a live demo and showed, you know, our camera settings and kind of how we think about approaching um, that technique. And, um, and then uh, we also did a photo review this morning um, and you can see what the other participants of the Out of Chicago Live Conference um, have been able to create just in the last week from their homes. Um, I don't know how many of you know Miles Morgan. Uh, he does, you know, some great landscape photography, but the style of his that I really love are his twilights, his blue hour shots, but his twilights could, could be even nautical um, twilight. And those to me are some of the most interesting nightscapes. They don't, they don't have to have a starry night sky. Uh, I'll throw in if, if you're, uh, you know, a lot of us are stuck inside. If you're, if you're in the light painting, if you already know how to do it, you could do light painting inside. And if you want to learn light painting, give yourself a crash course, it's a really good time to do that. You know, find a room where you can make it dark, find some interesting object you have, whether it's, you know, some small statue or something, you know, pull something off a shelf and open up your camera, just open the shutter and try light painting everything, anything that comes to your mind, you know, try different angles and uh, try different kinds of flashlights and see how the color temperature is different. Uh, you know, try backlighting and top lighting and, uh, you know, it, just anything that comes to your mind, just try it in a dark room, open your shutter and try it. See what you get. It's the best way to learn how to do that. Yes. Yep. That's actually how I taught myself back in the days. I had like a laser pointer in my closet. <laughs> but yeah, um, I actually did a Star Trail presentation and I think at the exact same time, you guys did your uh, yeah, course. So, yeah. And um, so that, that's also a good resource. And I was look, showing some of my early Star Trail images 
And one of them was from my front yard in the city with my, my Jeep. And another one was from the roof of my house in my backyard looking at the airport. So you could see all the planes and stuff flying around. So you can definitely do star trails right from your house. And I have a bunch of websites in the resources section of my presentation, including one that someone just put in the chat, the cleardarksky.com, which is absolutely one of my absolute favorite uh, night photography websites, just in terms of planning and figuring out where you want to go. So um, yeah, I think I love what Chris said about learning how to understand how much exposure it takes to overexpose and underexpose using in, in pure darkness, like in your basement or in a closet. You know, that's a great way to learn your settings in the dark too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, cool. Um, well, how much time do we have? About 20 more minutes, is that right? Yeah, you got about 20 more minutes, yeah. Okay, well, thinking maybe we could dive into uh, one of my favorite topics that I find that a lot of beginner night photographers don't necessarily even think about, um, probably because they're smarter than me, but... Uh, or just want to sleep better at night. But what kind of ethical considerations do you think exist around night photography and astrophotography? And I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking about, you know, compositing and and swapping skies and things of that nature. Like, where do you guys stand on some of those issues? Anything goes. I'm okay with any of it as long as you're truthful. I agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's. Uh... You know, I mean, it, it's art, right? There's no like right answers. So, uh, but if you're trying to say that you, you know, shot the Milky Way in this impossible position from downtown Chicago or whatever, and passing that off as, uh, as truth, then that's the only issue I would have, you know, but yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. that. It's important to keep your end goal in mind. Right. I mean, if you're shooting for National Geographic or a newspaper or something, you've got journalistic integrity to abide by and uh, make sure you're being truthful that way. Um, but there's the complete opposite end of the spectrum and, you know, producing digital art. And, uh, you know, I'm not into doing crazy composites and stuff, but I respect that as an art form. And, uh, you know, you do what you need to do to achieve the vision that you have. Uh, again, as long as you're being honest about it. Yeah. And, and, and I love some of the post-processing and composite stuff that some people are doing. That's just not me, uh, but I really appreciate what they're doing. And uh, some of it is very beautiful, but those things that I've done for National Geographic, you know, that they do in, in many cases, they require to see the, the raw file. They want to make sure that they're not gonna have egg on their face. Mike Taylor. I want to say that the um, the shot behind me is straight out of camera. Yeah, <laughs> single right. exposure. Right, <laughs> single exposure. Yeah. Um, no, I I actually named um, this shot illusory looking glass. Um, the word illusory means fake, and looking glass is another word for mirror. Right. So look at the shot, illusory looking glass. Yeah. <laughs> fake mirror. So yeah, fake. Oh. You know, it's, I'm sure anyone who's ever listened to my podcast knows what my position on this is, but I agree that you definitely want to be honest about it. Um, from, and I think it's a personal choice that you take as a photographer and as an artist, and um, you just have to be willing to defend your ground and justify what you're doing in some form or another. 
Uh, for me personally, I want my photography to convey an actual experience that I had and not something that I just imagined on, in Photoshop. And that's just, a, it's important to me for my work to be that way. I know Royce, we just uh, were authors, co-authors in a book, a night photography book called Secrets from the Stars. And my chapter is all about uh, true to experience night photography. Um, I guess where I came from that is one of the things you had said early on in this conversation, Royce, that really resonated with me was that, you know, night photography is, uh, it's changed quite a bit in the last five to 10 years. And, and it's look kind of starting all to look the same because people can, you can paste the night, night sky into pretty much any scene you want. And I think that's, what's kind of diminished the value of, great night photography for me anyway as a viewer is that it's just become so easy for people to fake it um and so that's for me it's if you want people to value the actual the whole thing for me i value the the true experience so that's my yeah. personal opinion though the experience of being out in the field and doing it yeah 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 you know, for those of you who are, who are new to this and haven't experienced, the first time that you actually see the stars and the Milky Way and the core in a truly dark area, um, <laughs> boy, sometimes I, I quit yep. taking pictures. I just want yep. to look at the yep. sky yep. without taking pictures. Yep. One of my favorite parts of doing a long exposure is spending that hour just laying on a rock, look it up. Watching, yeah. yep. Yeah. There's a question in the, in the chat. Uh, what do you think will happen when everyone gets a hold of one of those cell phones that shoots Astro? What ramifications will that bring? It'll push the envelope and make everybody better. Yeah, I agree. Right? Because yeah. there's going to be a new benchmark. I mean, that's what happened. That's happened through the history of photography, through the history of art. You know, things get better and uh, the, the cream's going to rise, you know? Yeah. It, uh, It'll, it'll allow more people to do what's being done now, but it'll also, uh, uh, the people who are pushing the envelope will find ways to use it to create images that we're not able to create right now. Yeah. It'll also allow people to see things that they haven't seen before, right? Yeah. Because like the cell phone is maybe going to be bought by somebody who's not ever like been out to a really dark sky location and hasn't really ever taken a look at the stars. And now they've got a tool that's making, it's more accessible to them. So they're going to go try and do it. And then maybe they'll appreciate the earth a little bit more as a result. Yeah. Yeah. This is how we grow as a race. You know, I know people get kind of scared of that about technology making, you know, we've spent a lot of time perfecting a skill and then technology makes it easier for everybody else. It's, that's how we grow. That's yeah. how the art grows. I, 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 I want my camera to be a cell phone. Like, <laughs> I mean, this thing is clunky, right? Like, look at it. It's like got things hanging off of it. It's got this like big grip. It's heavy. It's expensive. I can't fit it in my pocket. Like, yeah, give me a I cell agree. phone. That can do it, you know, <laughs> it, the cell phones that that can do it now, like the uh, the Google Pixel Four, um, are getting to the point where the shot that they take is really close to what a, a typical, you know, like an APS-C DSLR would give you. Um, and I mean, that's super cool. You're limited in what you can do with it. You know, it's got one focal length and, um, it takes four minutes to do a single shot. Uh, so, you know, like there's definitely constraints on it, but, you know, gosh, like if everybody realizes that they have that in their pocket and it means that, 
you know, they'll start developing concerns about light pollution and, you know, the quality of their night skies. Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I was going to say, on one hand, you know, the pros and cons of the ramifications of this is you're going to have a lot more people that get to experience the joy of night photography, which is awesome, which I think is alluding to something uh, that Ian and Diana said earlier about, you know, just getting people excited as beginners about night photography. I think it's going to make it even more accessible. I think on the flip side, you're going to have um, more saturation in the market for the type of work that we do. And it's not going to be, you know, the Mike Taylors, sorry, Mike, the Royces, you guys are going to have to pivot and think about how to, you know, provide different type of value to your customers. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's going to make us, uh, you know, go up the next level. We're going to have to, I've already seen that. I'm just, oh, a nobody. I'm just a nobody. Yeah. <laughs> there is a question in the chat, which is actually one of the questions I had written down before we started about um, Starlink from Elon Musk. Um, I think the question is, has anyone followed the state of the thousands of global Wi-Fi satellites that companies are planning on launching? Do you expect those to impact astrophotos in the future with hundreds of streaking satellites? And I so think I have that. a particularly <laughs> unique um, position in answering this question. If uh, Go for uh, it, man. Me too. Um, so before Diana and I quit our jobs uh, to do photography full-time, uh, I worked at SpaceX um, wow. as a structural engineer um, and I designed uh, many different systems for the Falcon 9 and Dragon spacecraft. Um, the Falcon 9 is the rocket that they use to launch the Starlink satellites um, and uh, so there's well I Ian's fault. Yeah. So send all your hate sorry, mail guys. to Ian at onlyspec.com um, <laughs> It, there's there's a lot of irony in it, I suppose, um, and uh, and also concern. You know, I mean, I, I I chose to leave SpaceX for other reasons, um, and I'm very proud of the work that I did there. Um, but at the same time, now it's sort of like, you know, how is this going to affect this other thing that you know we love so much? Um, and uh, there's a few, you know, definitely um, strong concerns about, you know, just understanding the scale of Starlink. For those of you who don't know about it, it's um, a constellation of satellites that's currently being assembled um, via many rocket launches by SpaceX to put up satellites uh, in ultra low Earth orbit that will provide global internet coverage to the world. Um, and, uh, it basically means that there's going to be 15,000 new satellites uh, in the sky in the next year. Um, and one of the biggest concerns with the early launches of Starlink is that the satellites were uh, very, very bright. Um, and there are still many of them that are in the night sky that are very, very bright. And um, as far as the, the answer to that, there's a few things um, as far as my understanding of, you know, like the orbits that they're in and um, what they're doing in terms of like the manufacturing of them. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, without like being on the engineering team anymore, it's hard to know what SpaceX is actually doing um, in order to mitigate this concern, which has basically been uh, 
a huge concern of the astrophotography and astronomy communities for these satellites like entering their photographs. Um, SpaceX has, you know, their, their publicity has said that uh, they are trying to mitigate the albedo, which is the reflectivity of the satellites. Um, and uh, you know, like somebody had mentioned in a previous chat, um, uh, you know, it's like, can I just paint them black? And the answer is yes. Like they can like dramatically lower the, the brightness of those satellites by painting them black. Um, and, or, you know, maybe it's not paint. It could be some type of other material that they're putting on there. Um, but uh, even so it's, pretty unlikely that our night sky will ever be completely the same with that sheer number of satellites. So, um, yeah, it's a tough thing to, to swallow. Um, and you know, I, you know, I hope that the engineers, like I, I know many of the engineers at SpaceX and I hope that the team that, that is working on those satellites, um, really is making it a huge priority to, make those satellites as dark as possible and to, you know, really do the science on how to mitigate uh, their impact on astronomy and astrophotography. So. Yeah. I've heard that one of the problems in uh, lowering the reflective is that it can cause the satellites to heat up. And uh... yeah, that, that is one of the primary concerns, um, but there are materials, there are materials like uh, a lot of satellites are covered in some, type of uh, what, what they call a multi-layer insulation uh, or MLI, which is usually made up of these very, very thin sheets of mylar. Um, yeah, often old satellites were covered in, in highly reflective mylar, um, but they also have ways of making it non-reflective, uh, for example, by adding uh, carbon to it. So they have carbonized uh, kapton, uh, which is, uh, it, it looks completely opaque black. It's like deep black um, and, you know, they could possibly add that a, a, as a layer to their, uh, their ins insulation on the satellites. Um, there's a number of things that they can do. Um, yeah, from my knowledge on it, 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 it's definitely something that's possible. And, you know, I would say that the, the guys in charge of, make, of doing the al albedo uh, minimization need to tell the people in the thermal dynamics uh, section of the company to just deal with it and, you know, come up with a better way of cooling their stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, that's kind of how engineering works, you know, in that company, it's sort of like, I need to do this. You go and, and talk to the woman working on, on thermal and you're like, this is what this has to be, you know, make it work. And, and that's just the nature of the engineering. And I, I think they can do it. Um, but how much effort they're putting into it, you know, uh, we don't know that. So. I had to share a funny comment from the chat, which was from Mike that says, so you do need to be a rocket scientist to be an astrophotographer. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to do astrophotography. It, I, it's uh, interesting that there were 2000 satellites up before uh, Starlink started and they just, uh, as of last week, added 400 to that 2000. And of course, as you said, the goal is 15,000 within a year, year and a half, and 40,000 total. So I hope they can figure this out real quickly before they get too many more up there. Yeah, yeah. There's also things that change too with it. Like it, it takes a long time for the satellites to distribute uh, in their orbits. Um, so a lot of them start very closely spaced, which it can be super disruptive because you'll take a photograph and they'll all stream through the photo at the same time. Um, and the, the other things too that make a difference are 
the positions of their orbits. They are in very low Earth orbit, which luckily does mean that they can enter the penumbra of the Earth, which is basically the shadow of the Earth. Um, that way, you know, it, you know, if we're shooting photos, um, you know, late at night, at least the satellites will be entering uh, into darkness. Um, if the satellites had been staged to be in a much higher orbit, like say geostationary or even just a higher low Earth orbit, um, it's possible that they could be in sunlight, even though we, we could be shooting photos at, at midnight and we'd be able to see a geostationary satellite that's completely lit up by the sun. And you know, if there were 15,000 geostationary satellites, our night sky would never, you know, we'd have a bunch of false stars, like a big grid of false stars in the sky. Um, so, you know, by design, there are a few things that are at least maybe not as bad as it could be. Um, but, you know, time will tell, I suppose. Well, I think you brought something out very good and that's that in this early stage, they're grouped together so closely and the pictures that we're seeing are, you know, they're showing those groups. All right. Well, thanks to our great panelists for a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can gain access to over 100 more presentations, discussions, and tutorials from the Out of Chicago Live event for the low cost of $300. This grants you access to all of that content for a year, and most of the proceeds go to help support professional photographers who are all struggling right now during the pandemic. I'll post a link to the event in the show notes. Well, thanks again to our wonderful patrons who are keeping the show alive. You are truly an inspiration to me. I love to support what you are doing too, so don't hesitate to reach out. I always love to thank our $20 and up patrons by name on the show. So without further ado, thanks to Craig Young, Andrew Hawkins, Jennifer King, Drew Harbaugh, Jim Valencourt, Drew Armstrong, Joshua Wallace, Jason Clardy, John Whitaker, Michael Rung, Frank Otto Peterson, Suzanne Mathia, Matthias Joland, Richard Wong, William Nurse, Laurie Berenson, Anton Everine, James Bakavoy, Ken Dono, Charlotte Gibb, Jeff Peterson, Eric Stensland, Jack Curran, Danny LeFrancois, David Kingham, and Gary Randall. You guys are awesome. All right. Well, here is what is coming up on the show. I have recorded so many episodes. It is awesome. Uh, and we have so much content coming out. I've sat, I sat down with a new up-and-comer named Ethan Deshays. That should be next week. And he shared his perspective uh, as someone who's new to the craft, which I thought was really interesting. I also recorded with one of my longtime heroes here in Colorado, Todd Cottle. He has a reputation for kind of telling it how it is and gets him in trouble. And we talked about how him getting in trouble is really just based on his passion for photography. I also recorded with Manuel Palacios, a photographer from upstate New York. He has a wonderful vision and his obsession with the Adirondacks shines through in his awesome work. He's also a scientist by training, so he talked a lot about kind of the comparing and contrasting art and science. It was really fun. Um, I was also able to sit down and talk with Margaret Soraya. She's a photographer living in the highlands of Scotland. Um, I've talked with uh, Joseph Roybal. Talk coming up, I'm talking with Felix Inden, Elizabeth Brontano, 
uh, William Neal, Bree Stockwell, David Brookover, and many more. All right. Well, thanks for supporting the podcast. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.